All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Another installment for the archives of the Conspiracy Farm. Jeffrey Wilson riding with you here, Shotgun. Pat Militich, my co-host, is flying in the sky off to, I think, Orange County, California for Access TV Fights. Mark Cuban's network uh, for LFA. So he's not going to be joining us today, ladies and gentlemen. You're going to have to deal with me once again. Deal with it, folks. Another jam-packed episode, and I'm so, so glad she has returned. We had her earlier, uh, what was it, last spring or summer, had some had some internet difficulties. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, she had just gotten back from Syria, one of her many trips to Syria, which we're, of course, going to talk about here. Um, man, like I told her off air, she, she worries me a bit, man. I, I worry about her a little bit, but she's she does have some guardian angels watching her. She's um, awesome. Canadian journalist Eva Bartlett. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you for your very kind words. Well, of course, you are well deserved of them. You, uh, wow. I, I, keep, I obviously follow you on the face space. You just got back from Iceland. Amazing pictures there. You got back from <laughs> insane pictures. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then obviously last spring or, or whenever you got back from uh, Syria, once again, that was what, your fifth or sixth run out there? Uh, my ninth. <laughs> Excuse me. That's <laughs> okay. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the work you do. I mean, it's so... It's very authentic, and you are boots on the ground because obviously we get such a different narrative with the mainstream media. Excuse me, not just in Syria, but Gaza as well, where you where you yeah. lived for a while. If you don't mind, I mean, I guess I'd set one up for you for you to knock out of the park here. What's going on over there? Obviously, we hear everybody hates Assad. He's gassing his own people. But I mean, again, the beautiful work that you do. You're there. You're boots on the ground with your videos. Your cab drivers. Your, your interviews with families who's, who've been freed and saved. Talk to us about what we're hearing as far as the mainstream narrative on, on what's going on over there and what you've seen. Boots on the ground for the ninth time. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll preface it by saying two of my trips were with peace delegations uh, in April 2014 and February 2015, the latter being with uh, Ramsey Clark, who I'm sure you're aware of, was the former attorney general and an amazing man, amazing um, anti-war activist. Uh, so very honored to have gone with him and Sarah Flounders of the International Action um, Committee or Center and also Cynthia McKinney. Uh, that was a phenomenal two or three day trip. But the other um, times I've gone to Syria have been on my own. And um, I won't dwell on the organizing of these trips, but I will just note, because you did make a reference to corporate media, um, I'm, I'm fairly certain that when corporate media do deign to go to Syria, most of the journalists that go, you know, everything's taken care of for them, all the arrangements, the visa, the travel, etc. And people, um, independent journalists and other visitors, activists that go to Syria, do it on their own. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of planning that goes into it. And a lot of, uh, for people like myself and my colleague Vanessa Beely and other people I know, I know we always do it very um, uh, shoestring budget. I mean, with all, which also lends itself to your credibility, because obviously if you're getting paid by a network, that tends to kind of skew the content or skew the narrative. Yeah, but you know the nice thing about doing things shoestring um, is that, for example, to go to Damascus from Beirut, I take a shared taxi. So right away, I'm, I'm meeting Syrians and interacting with Syrians, and usually I, I, I hear a ton of stories before I even reach Damascus. And I stay in a hotel in the old city, which enables me to just interact with people um, randomly, uh, people that I know. And since I've been going since 2014 and staying in the old city since 2014, and of course traveling around the country, um, you you, you uh, mentioned you know corporate media 
trying to convince uh, the Western public that President Assad isn't popular amongst his people. And I realize there's a segment of um, ideologues that have their own Muslim Brotherhood or Wahhabi fanatical ideology that don't like President Assad, but they are a very small minority. And uh, I swear, if you go to Syria, um, you don't have to take my word for it, go to Syria, you will meet Sunnis, you will meet uh, Christians, you'll meet um, Syrians of all faiths that support President Assad. Yes, they have legitimate grievances with the government and they want change, um, but their issue was never with President Assad. And um, I can't reiterate that enough because, listen, Syrians tell me this every single time I go, and I know by now, it's like, yeah, I know. But they tell me this because it's important to them that people understand this isn't about Assad. And furthermore, people who might have been, you know, not crazy about President Assad at the beginning, now definitely rally behind him. They see him as a unifier. They see him as the force that is standing up to these sectarian um, terrorists that have flooded their country and that have made their life living hell for the last seven years. And, and I don't, I mean, I think we, since we're not there, we really, it's hard for us to really understand the kind of hell you're talking about. These, I mean, cities are being leveled, ancient cities are being leveled, you know, families separated, hundreds, hundreds kidnapped. I mean, the, the, what is it? What I write down, the, the torture, the, the the kidnapping, the starvation. I mean, it just it's it's absolutely insane what's going on, and it just goes like what you had said. Like you know, there's all these different sects and all these different ethnicities and languages living together. But over here, it's like no, this is civil war. It's just absolute chaos. And again, I don't think we I don't think we really get how horrible it's been over there. I think the last time we spoke, the eighteen thousand kids who've had their organs harvested. I mean, just the level of death and destruction over there is just. I don't think we get it. And the thing that really just, for lack of a better term, pisses me off is almost the, the inversion of reality. And we've seen Absolutely. it. WMDs, Colin Powell with his little powder. I mean, manufacturing shit to go in and kill scores and scores of people. And then over here in the West, we're just, you know, rah, rah, do it again. Glass parking lot. It just it, it, it upsets me greatly. I mean, obviously, you too and you, your boots on the ground seeing it. It's just. Why we we're so willing to just buy into another war like that is it's I, crazy. Uh, since you know, since you ask about my own experiences, I would encourage people. Uh, I can send you the link. Um, a blog post I did from one of my trips, which was actually two months in the summer of 2016. And during that time, I was traveling extensively around Syria. I went um, during that time. I went twice to Aleppo, which was still. Uh, uh, the eastern areas were still occupied by Al-Qaeda and other terrorists, Nordin Azinki, known for beheading children, or at least one child. Um, and in my travels, aside from going to Aleppo, I went to coastal areas like Tartus and Latakia and Jebele. And um, in those areas, it's notable. I mean, you want to you talk about a, a civil war. These areas comprise Syrians of all faiths and from around the country like millions of Syrians who are internally displaced. These are refugees that corporate media don't talk about. These are internal refugees and they've gone to government secured areas because they're getting away from the terrorists that are slaughtering them, that are imposing Sharia law on them. All the hellish things that these terrorist groups are doing to them, they don't want to be a part of it. So they fled to government areas and they rebuild their lives there. So this is another important point when corporate media uh, likes to disdain people, uh, whether they're activists or journalists or simple observers that go to Syria, um, they they are disdained. Um, you know, the corporate media will say things like, well, they only went to the government areas. But in the government areas, you can meet Syrians from Derzor, from Hasaka, from eastern Syria. You can meet Syrians from all over. And they will speak, most of them will speak honestly about why they fled. 
So uh, again, that, that, that uh, post, the updates from on the ground in Syria, I think I called it, um, from summer 2016. And I have, for example, um, uh, an entry from going to an area in a, a village called Tauna. And Tauna is just um, less than a kilometer away from another village called Akrab. Now, Akrab, um, now I might have the date wrong, but I think it was December, either 2012 or 13. There were a massacre of civilians. There was a massacre of civilians in Akrab. Uh, over 100 civilians killed. And so when I went to Tawuna, I was able to meet some of the people that were able to flee Akrab. And this massacre, um, again, I'd have to check my notes. It, I believe it was the Free Syrian Army that committed the massacre. Um, so going to Tawuna, I was able to both talk with survivors of the massacre, some of whom their loved ones were still missing. So they were afraid to use their real names. I don't know if that's the same one I have here. August 2013, I'm going to massacre these names. Uh, Latatki, I think you said in in Baluta, 200 villages massacred by ISIS, 200 villages kidnapped. Yeah, no, this is a different area. This is in Hama province. In okay, South. so this is another one. <laughs> oh yeah, there's tons of massacres. And um, at one point in October 2015, I wrote an article called Deconstructing the NATO Narrative on Syria. And basically I looked at the various um, misunderstandings and myths, including whether or not President Assad has popularity, but also including um, the number of massacres. And I, I wasn't even able to touch on all the massacres. I just looked at some of the prominent ones, like the one you mentioned in Baluta um, and other massacres committed by these terrorists. Um, but yeah, in, in Akrab, um, or in, sorry, in Tauna, I met these um, villagers that had been in Akrab when terrorists basically came into their village, held them in a building for up to 10 days, I think it was, deprived them of food and water. Um, I remember they, they said something about sticking their handkerchief out the window to try to collect rain, and they'd be shot at by the terrorists. Wow. And anyway, after that, then, uh, after being kept for around 10 days, then, some of them were, well, 100 or more were massacred and others were kidnapped. Um, so this is in a village that is in a government secured areas, but you can hear these bloody and horrific testimonies. This is what the people have been living with and fighting off. Um, also, when I was in, in the Siaf, um region, I went to another place called um, Dermama, and there I met a man who had been in the Adra industrial zone, and that's just outside of Damascus. And now I forget the date, I'm sorry, but, um, let's say 2012 or 2013, there was a horrific massacre there where terrorists um, infiltrated the Audra industrial zone, which had residential areas for the workers, and slaughtered people. They, there's an RT article with an RT journalist, a Russian journalist that was on the ground, and I think the article is something like slaughtered like sheep, and they burned some of the people in, in ovens. Like, it was horrific what they did. Wow. Anyway, this man was there. He was working in Audra, and his family was with him, and he happened to be Alawi. And unfortunately, whereas Syria um, has long stood against um, sectarianism and has one of the things Syrians uh, are very proud of is their secular nature, unfortunately, the thugs that the West has sent into, into Syria to terrorize civilians, whatever faith, even including Sunnis, um, they do especially target Alawis. So this man, his family, and some neighbors were Alawis from the Messiah region. And um, he, uh, now I forget all the details because this was some years ago, but he basically fought as much as he could. He fought the terrorists for, uh, I think it was up to one month. I'm sorry, I, I don't remember these details. He lost his entire family. When he actually escaped, um, everybody thought he was dead. And this is just one of so many massacres that Syrians have been enduring. Well, and we I mean, can't overlook something you just said, and we speak about it oftentimes on this show, and when I talk to people about it face-to-face, -face, they act like, they look at me like I'm crazy about these terrorists, these ISIS forces, these are, you know, 
they're funded by the West. I mean, this is another proxy army, just like the Mujahideen. I mean, this has happened several times throughout history, but this is another Western operation. Or, you know, Saudi allies, Israel. I mean, and that's the, the manufactured nature of it. Again, this, the PSYOP, of the, the, that inversion of reality aspect of it. And then you bring in these white helmets that go on to win an Oscar for, for just like one of the biggest charades ever. And then we cut off funding and then we resume funding. I mean, talk, talk to me about how, what, not just your thoughts on it, but the locals' thoughts on the West's funding and arming these terrorists to be able to wreak the havoc that they do. Well, uh, the average Syrians I've met, I've encountered so many Syrians just randomly, like in Homs, in Latakia, in Damascus, who talk like a political analyst. They, they know about the project. They know that Syria was in the crosshairs, was being targeted before 2011. They lived through the 80s, you know, in Hama, with the Muslim Brotherhood committed massacres. And after the Syrian uh, president and army quashed that massacre, that pocket of, of terrorists, they were in fact terrorists and they started the massacre. I'm not an expert on the 80s or anything in general, but um, after that, what they say is we see what's happening now is a repeat of the 80s. These sectarian thugs that want to destroy us, that want to put us under their, their warped version, their warped interpretation of Islam, um, th this is what's happening again, and the West is enabling it. But even aside from that, now it's, it's uh, 2018, and we have access to so many leaked documents showing that the West was funding the terrorists even before 2011. And, and you have other leaked documents saying the West foresaw the rise of the Islamic State. I think that that one was in 2012. And we've know, had Andiliana Gaitanjeva, I think we spoke to you about this before. I mean, she pretty much blew that wide open as far as catching, yes. catching weapons that were left behind. Something you just mentioned, and it's it's interesting because General Wesley Clark said it, you know, five countries in seven years, or maybe it was the, the reverse, but obviously it's taken longer. They've knocked out several of them. Why yes. is, I mean, you have so much speculation. They want uh, Syria as a part of a, a pipeline. Uh, China wants it as a part of a one belt, one road. I mean, there's so many different reasons as to why that place is never going to leave the crosshairs, I don't think. Why is that? The central bank, they're not a part of central bank like Iran, et cetera, et cetera. What are your thoughts on why it's so, why they have such a hard on for Syria? Uh, well, Sorry, I didn't mean to be crass, but. No, no, I took <laughs> all the points you just mentioned. Um, also, Syria's support to resistance, whether it's Hezbollah or it's Palestinian resistance, it's refusal to, oh, you know, Syria's uh, land is occupied by Israel. Syria's officially, you know, technically at war with Israel. The and Golan it, Heights area? It wants its land back. Um, and it hasn't capitulated to any of the demands of the West, of the Zionist-NATO alliance. So that's another major factor. Um, and America wants another presence in the Middle East. They already have Israel, but, you know, they, the more the better. And there are a the number of factors. Uh, but certainly, I think the points you mentioned, too, about, you know, not letting the IMF in, not being, I think it's they're not a part of the international banking system. Um, and they were, they were completely um, self-sufficient before 2011. And, you know, the, the Western sanctions on Syria, this is a crime against the Syrian people that very few um, journalists talk about. Now, my colleagues and people I respect talk about it, but corporate media won't talk about it. They won't address the reality and severity of these sanctions. They'll say, no, no, the sanctions were just, they're just on Syria's leadership. But I know for a fact the sanctions are affecting the people. Like, they can't get the, the medical equipment they need. They can't get, they can't improve the medical equipment they have or get the expertise to come in. They can't get an, um, cancer treatment medication. They, all these things um, are, are sanctioned by the U.S., by the Western countries, but primarily by the U.S. 
and just on my last visit this year, I met with the Ministry of Health and I was asking specifically how, how, how is the health sector coping? And it is coping. And, and even the WHO prior to 2011 rated Syria's health system as top notch, one of the best in the area. But over the years, the combination of the war, the sanctions, terrorists blowing up hospitals like the Kindy Hospital, which was destroyed, truck bomb destroyed in 2012 or 13. And this was like an amazing anti-cancer and um, specialty hospital in, in Aleppo. And it served the whole region. It was destroyed. And I actually, just as a segue, but I, I met the former director of that hospital and he said to me, he implored Western uh, organizations, international organizations, when the hospital was first occupied by terrorists to do something. And he, he was met with silence. And then he implored them for a reaction when the hospital was destroyed and he was met by silence. Well, you got these certain organizations I was going to ask you about how the what role they play, like a USA aid, which is often heard as being like a, a front for the CIA. So, I mean, they're probably not going to be too too on you know too quick to, to help them out another you bring you're bringing up points that i was going to anyway zionism you'd said like the zionist you know obviously we've a lot of people have heard about zionism and i had a guest on around 9 11 and we were talking about that and i wanted to make sure he qualified that because people have a very they want a shortcut to thinking they hear a certain term and they just want to think it means xyz or you're anti-semitic or anti-jew etc talk to me if you don't mind just kind of for lack of a better qualifying, what do you mean by when you say Zionism and the role Zionism plays in geopolitics and has for a very long time? The political ideology to basically invade and um, genocide Palestine um, for a state for the Jews is what essentially it was, but the original Zionist leaders weren't even um, religious Jews. And it was, it's, it's, I mean, I'm not, I'm really not an expert on this. I speak more from on the ground experiences, but my, I would say in general, it's a project, it's a colonial project that took over Palestine that serves colonial interest, either Britain and America and also Canada. I won't, um, I won't negate Canada's role in supporting this project. Um, so if you go back to the, I think it's called the Balfour Declaration or whatever yeah. it was that, that gets into a lot of, yeah, how that originated. Yeah, to basically hand over Palestine to uh, the Zionist Jews that wanted to go and, and occupy Palestine. When and, there's always that, that grand chess game going on because you hear, you know, supposedly the Zionists or Israel created Hamas as that kind of uh, another kind of proxy force against uh, other elements of the PLO, I think it was. But I mean, there's always these kind of internal uh, shenanigans that, again, inverse invert reality. And I guess I could ask you. Palestine, what's going on in Palestine? I mean, it's been going on for a very, very long time, but looking at your work and looking at your posts and seeing other things on the internet, people, I mean, kids are being sniped. I mean, we don't hear anything about this here in the West. Children are being sniped, and it sounds like it's, they're always looking for a rationalization. I'm doing some prep for my JFK uh, episode next week, and Colonel Fletcher Prouty was on and talking about back in the day when they first started clandestine ops, they had to go to the NSC and the NSC when it first was comprised was more of a reactive force, not saying, hey, here's what's going on in the world. Let's go start stuff over there. It was more reactive. But individuals like Alan Dulles would come in and be like, hey, look what they look what they're doing over here, not saying what they did to provoke them. And that's what we get over here with often news over what's going on in the Golan or uh, Gaza and everything. You just hear about the reaction why they're behaving this way. I mean, they're not even close as far as arms. They got U.S. tanks and all that other stuff. And for the most part, the people in that area aren't near as armed, but no, children no. are being sniped and they somehow rationalize it in the news. 
it's a completely un unequal playing ground, uh, unlevel playing ground, unequal fight. Uh, the Israelis have state-of-the-art technology. They have, um, I'm not a military um, person, but they, I know I know they have 16s because I lived under them. They have drones, they have Apache helicopters, they have tanks, they have a remotely uh, controlled machine gun towers that fire on people in the border regions. And look, I spent three years in Gaza and I worked with farmers and fishers. And these are people that our media doesn't talk about. Um, if we were to hear a headline about a farmer being targeted, it would be something along the lines of the Israeli Defense Forces, which they are not, um, retaliated against a suspicious terrorist or something like that. Look, I worked with farmers, and these are elderly, these are shabab, like young men that are working as paid laborers, and their families, including children. And they're literally in an area that's been bulldozed and raised. So there's not many trees in the border regions, whereas it used to be plentiful in trees, fruit, nut, olive, and other trees. Then now it's, it's, it's been, it's over the years, Israel has raised these trees. So with the blind eye looking towards the fence between the border region and so-called Israel, and I'm sorry that I do say so-called Israel because it's a state that is built on the genocide of Palestinians, on Palestinian land. But in any case, you can see you can see clearly, they can see clearly that they're shooting on unarmed Palestinians. In addition to that, they have the technology. They're not using the, just their eye, they're using drones, they're using um, surveillance balloons, and they're using you know whatever binoculars. So they can see very well that they're targeting unarmed farmers, and they do this daily, and they shoot to kill. They shot around me. Uh, as activists, we would stand there with the bullets flying around us. They shot around me and, and shot a young, <clears throat> at the time a 17-year-old deaf Palestinian farmer who was literally working to support his family and whose cousin was shot in the neck and killed three weeks prior to that. Well, and yeah, I mean, the, the American journalist, I think maybe she was Canadian. I forget that she was got ran over by a bulldozer or a steamroller. For, I mean, that's yeah. was fairly underreported here. But, I mean, it just it just defies logic, Eva, that, that, that I don't we just don't get the depth of the darkness that's going on there. And if we always synthesize it through this, oh, they're Muslim, you know what I mean? Like the, the, the cultural war that they've created, the East versus West and the anti-Muslim stuff that goes around here. It's absolutely insane because whatever. But it's how it's so underreported. And but yet it's so I mean, the pictures you, you posted, uh, the white phosphorus that's being I, I used, that. you know, um, so in uh, so it was April this year that all the West and all the newspapers and all the so-called humanitarian organizations um, and, and Western leadership and Israeli leadership blamed Syria, blamed the president of Syria, blamed the Syrian army uh, for having allegedly used a chemical weapon in Duma. Now, I know that's not true. And any independent journalist that's, goes, that's gone there knows that's not true. And Robert Fisk, who has a hate on the Syrian government, knows that's not true. And he went there and he talked with the Syrian medical staff there. And he, he, he concluded himself there was no attack. And the OPCW went there. The Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons went there and did not find the alleged nerve agent, sarin, that was alleged to have been used there. But in any case, at that time, Israel, the Israeli leadership, I forget which particular leader, it's probably Netanyahu, was pointing their finger at Syria and, you know, um, crocodile tearing about chemical weapons having been used. When I lived in Gaza, I was living there during the war on Gaza in December 2008, January 2009. Israel used white phosphorus, and it wasn't used as a smokescreen. It was fired deliberately at civilian homes and at residential areas, at, at a school that was housing internally displaced Palestinians. And in the main hospital, Sheikh Hospital, I met a family 
half the family I later learned was killed by a white phosphorus shell. The other half were grotesquely mutilated by this 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 chemical that burns till bone. It's and not even it's, supposed to be used, isn't it? Isn't it like against the Geneva, yeah. Geneva Accord to use that? Uh, my understanding is that it's permitted to be used in non-civilian areas as a smokescreen. But as you know, Gaza is a tiny place. There's now 2 million people living there. Wow. It's like 40 kilometers wide, long and, and mm -hmm. at, at its widest point, uh, 12 kilometers wide. And there is hardly a place that you could imagine would be acceptable to use white phosphorus since it's so densely inhabited. And I mean, and the destruction, I just, I mean, ugh, what it does to people is so... It's there's really no words for it because the pictures you showed were I mean I picture I've, I've even seen some of those before about you know infants and it's yeah. and you just don't hear about it I mean the last couple I mean the last month we've all I mean you know and it sucks the Kosoji the journalist who when it, what happened to him I mean that's that's messed up man but I mean the list I mean what twenty I there's so many different journalists who've been killed not just yeah. in Palestine not just in Syria but Turkey and I mean. It's, the list is just absolutely insane, and we don't hear anything about it. All we get is the complete opposite of, uh, you know, it's crazy. The Again, the inversion of reality just really freaks me out because the media, they're so culpable in this, and yeah. the power of the media and controlling people and the, controlling the narrative, which in turn controls people's perception of events, is so powerful. I mean, what yeah. you're saying right now just is so opposite of what we hear, complete they're opposite. They're creating the narrative. They're controlling and creating the narrative. They're inventing things that never happened. I mean, uh, another thing I've been doing on my recent trips to Syria is to really try to collect as many testimonies as I can about the early days in Syria. So in on my first trip to Syria with the peace delegation, uh, we went to Latakia, and I, I spoke with this, this uh, mother and her son, Lily and her son, Stephen. They were talking about April 2011 and how the LA Times issued a report saying all these things happen, security forces cracking down, blah, blah, blah. And she said she was in every single place out doing errands, visiting friends. She was in every place that this LA Times report named, and she said none of that was happening. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard the same words from Syrians. Syrians here saying, oh, you know, I saw in Al Jazeera that something was happening in Homs or in my home, so I called my family, and they're like, no, nothing's happening. Um, but more, when I was in Syria in May and then in September, I went to Dara, which is supposed to be the so-called birthplace of the revolution. And again, I collected many testimonies of people saying, no, 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 no. The protests were not unarmed. They were not peaceful. They were sectarian. They were people that had weapons. They were shooting on security forces. And uh, by now, 2018, it's not just me who's saying this. And I, I'm certainly not the first to have said this. There's a chorus of people, not corporate media, not mainstream, who have collected testimonies, who have done research. Sharmin Narwani wrote an excellent article called The Hidden Massacre looking at the early months of 2011 and how scores, like um, nearly 90, I think it was, Syrian soldiers were massacred. And who were they massacred by? Oh, she details, she details the ambushes, that this is occurring at a time when all the Western world is saying, and Al Jazeera is saying, the protests are peaceful, they're you know uprising against the tyrant, when in fact, um, actually just recently, I interviewed two different Syrian doctors, and one of them was based in Saudi Arabia, and uh, he was going to Damascus every two weeks, and this was in 2011. And I asked him the same kind of questions. What did you see? Were they peaceful protests, etc.? And again, everything that he witnessed was the same as what I've heard in Syria. No, they were not peaceful. They were sectarian. And I'll, I'll just tell you one anecdote. I haven't gotten the interview published, but he said, um, now I forget if it was June 2011 or earlier, 
his family was going to um, the area outside of Madaya, which is west of Damascus. It's like a nice, a very pretty mountain area um, that Syrians used to go to for internal tourism, to get away, to picnic or go to restaurants. And he said his family was out in one of these villages and heading back to Damascus. And as they approached Madaya, it was a convoy of six cars, like their extended family. They had the windows up and the music on. And suddenly they see an armored car and a Syrian soldier jump out of the armored car and run for them, run at them, waving his hands. And they couldn't hear what he was saying. They unrolled the windows. He's like, turn back, turn back. There's firing. And it turned out there had been, this is like early 2011 during the peaceful protest. There were militants in the hills of Madaya firing on the Syrian army post. And it wasn't even a tank. It was just an armored vehicle at a, at a checkpoint. And this soldier, you know, the soldier of the army that is allegedly killing people, risks his own life jumping up into the gunfire to wave the civilians back and make them turn around. And he said, this doctor said, he was he was doing surgery when his wife um, texted him saying, we're gonna die, and he didn't see it. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, or whatever, she texted him and said, Alhamdulillah, we survived. And um, the rest of the story was that they rerouted their return to Damascus, went on a different road, and as they were driving back, uh, uh, some cousin or something said, don't go to Madaya, the Syrian regime is firing on civilians. And they had, this person was seeing it on Al Jazeera or something. And they just come from there. So this is just one example of yeah. many. You know, I, I'm not sure if I told you the other example. Last time we spoke about the, the doctor, Amr Vantus, who was in a military hospital in Dara government. Um, this hospital was around 40 kilometers from Dara city. And uh, this was early 2011, and he had his his hospital had been uh, given commands from the military commander treat civilians first if they come to the hospital, civilians before soldiers. And he said there were so many doctors there that he had nothing to do. Uh, so he was sitting there drinking coffee, watching Al Jazeera, and Al Jazeera was saying the military hospital is turning away civilians. The military hospital doesn't have enough doctors. And he's like, this is not true. This is absolutely not true. I mean, just complete fabrications, just like you said. I mean, but it reminds me of um, the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter before the Persian Gulf War. They're turning over incubators with babies in them, and the babies are rolling on the floor. I mean, just a complete... Well, and this is uh, the National Defense Authorization Act 2, or one or two, that Obama signed made it basically illegal. They'd been doing it already, but basically codified the fact and legalized the fact that they can use propaganda against civilians. It's crazy. And yeah, it works. It, it clearly, it works. <laughs> it, the, 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 uh, the, um, I meant to Omran. Omran Dagnish. I think we talked a little about him last time. That was a huge tool as well. Explain who that is a little bit, if you can. So he was a, a young boy, um, a really you know, gorgeous, cute young boy with a bowl haircut. And uh, in, I think it was August 2016, this is at a time there was a lot of war propaganda around Aleppo because Eastern and some Southern and other pockets of Aleppo, Eastern areas were occupied by Al-Qaeda and other terrorists. And the Syrian army was, you know, there was a siege on these areas. The Syrian army was opening corridors to allow civilians to come out. Uh, but this incident was before those corridors. Anyway, but the army was fighting terrorism, these Al-Qaeda terrorists that were essentially holding the population hostage in eastern Aleppo. And around that time, in um, in one of the districts in eastern Aleppo, there was a story that the Syrian or Russian governments had bombed a home, and this was the home of Amran Daknish, and that he was rescued by the valiant white helmets. And the photo that went around the world was taken by a man named Mahmoud Raslan, and um, the photo showed this gorgeous young boy sitting in an ambulance looking completely stunned with bits of dust and a little bit of blood on his face. And at the time, many people um, 
theorized, you know, people who were skeptical theorized that the entire photo was staged. And I was among them. I was very skeptical, like, oh, come on, is this for real? I mean, because I worked with medics in Gaza, so I know you never, they would, a medic would never just sit a child down, take photos, and not administer first aid, right? He's in shock, so you do something for the first aid. But he wasn't being given treatment. He was being photographed. And I remember seeing a clip, and he was sat there for like 10 or 15 seconds being photographed. So clearly, medics were not involved in treating what was appearing, um, appearing to be a young wounded boy. But this photo was uh, said to be the face of, of suffering in Syria. Now, as it turned out, there was neither a Russian nor a Syrian airstrike on his home. And I was in um, Aleppo in June 2017, and I had heard that maybe the family was still there. So I asked around. And to be honest, um, there was a, a person there that deals with the reporters, and she's like, no, nah, he's not here. I said, really, please, I, I've heard he's here. I really want to interview him. And as it turned out the same day, he gave an interview. The father gave an interview to Syrian and um, some other um, affiliated media. So the next day, I pushed and pushed, and I was finally able to get an interview with the family. And the father, basically, his, his story, and Vanessa Billy later on interviewed him as well and found out some other interesting details. But the father basically told me, there was no airstrike. I heard no airplane. I cannot, you know, I cannot testify to something I did not hear or see. There was a blast. Um, he gathered his family into one room during the darkness, or, you know, in, in the darkness, he gathered his family into one room. At some point, Amran, his young boy, went missing. And later on, he learned that Amran had been taken to a hospital. And he went there, and, and um, the story goes on that um, he maintains, again, there was no airstrike. And he was very upset that his, his boy had been taken from him, and he felt like he had been, um, his son had been used. They were trading in his blood, as he said. And he said that he was pressured from terrorists and media um, sympathetic to terrorists to tell their story. He said they tried to offer him bribes to get him to tell their story, to, to leave with them, and he chose not to leave. And also, uh, at some point, I asked him about the Syrian army, and he's, he's a total supporter of the Syrian army. And I have that on video of him yeah, saying the Syrian army attacked Syria. So none of this narrative was followed up on by Western media, by that CNN uh blonde reporter, I think her name is Buldan or something like that, who literally stammered, stammered on, um, on, you know, reading her script, stammered saying how sad she was for Amran. And there's um, Amanpour that waved uh, Amran's photo, I think in Sergei Lavrov's face, if I remember correctly, saying, look what you've done, look what you've done. None of those people have gone back to Aleppo and they can, but they haven't gone back to, you know, edit or correct their story. Yeah, exactly. So this boy was extremely exploited. At the same time, just uh, a month earlier, um, this group that I mentioned earlier, the Nurdin Lazinki, had beheaded, methodically and slowly beheaded a Palestinian boy after torturing him. And he was, uh, apparently he said, just shoot me, just kill me. And they didn't. They slowly beheaded him. And the person that took Amran's photo is buddies with those exact terrorists wow. who beheaded Abdullah Isa. Mahmoud Rasman, who cries for Syrian children, has grinning selfies with Nuruddin Azinki. And this is the person, and this is another point I just want to make um, before we move on. This is the person that Western media put on a pedestal, you know, and gave accolades to for his photograph. And time and again, if you look at the sources that media are relying on, they almost inevitably always have a terrorist connection. You look at the Facebook page, they're praising Jaysh al-Islam, they're praising terrorists. They have photos of themselves with terrorists. And these are always the people. It's like John McCain taking a picture with uh, a Baghdadi. I mean, that's yeah. Yeah, but but then you have other people who go to Syria who take 
we literally take the testimonies. What's your name? What happened to you? Can I record you? And those people are discredited because they're in government areas. It's just absolutely um, obscene. Wow. And just like you said, they just can fabricate it. I mean, it's it's so wickedly diabolical. And yeah. just like, um, what's, you know, Yemen. Yemen is just like an extension of all of this. And just Yemen doing what they're doing with American weapons, you know, from Saudi 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 Arabia doing it to the I mean it's it's absolutely crazy what's going on talk to me about Yemen another thing we hear barely anything about you know I I have to say um, I'm not that well versed on Yemen I know the basics that it's been uh, warred upon and and besieged by Saudi Arabia for I believe it's four years I really defer I'm going to shout out some people now I would defer to people like um, there's a woman on Twitter um, Soraya um, she goes by Two Flames Burning. I can send you her Twitter handle. Uh, Marwa Asman, a political commentator who's on top of things. Vanessa Bealy as well. Um, but basically, you know, Canada is, is quite guilty of selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. And then uh, periodically, uh, Foreign Policy Canada on Twitter will tweet something about a human rights violation. And they're the ones that are enabling Saudi to massacre Yemenis. And, uh, and now... The numbers, I, again, I'm sorry, I'm not more well-versed in this, right. but I believe it's 17 million Yemenis not are on the brink of, as is being said. They are starving. They're not on the brink of starvation. They're, they're being slowly genocided. Um, and it's, of course, entirely preventable. But, um, you know, to my understanding, it's impossible to get aid into Yemen. Um, it's impossible to get into Yemen, period, unless I suppose the UN can get in. But it's a really um, completely preventable and utterly obscene a tragedy doesn't even suffice. It's it's utterly obscene. It's genocide. Well, and it's again, it's so hard to describe. The same stuff that's going on, and you know, in Palestine and in, in Syria. It's just we we're, we we live pretty cushy lives over here. A lot of us, we just don't, especially with the media not even touching it. Um, somebody I had on a couple of weeks ago. I've always I've kind of tried to pivot away from the politics of the geopolitics because it could be freaking exhausting. And so I've, I've always been fascinated by, um, you know, ancient civilizations, you know, kind of ancient history, ancient civilizations. And something that came up um, about the war in Iraq and, and even what's going on in Syria and the destruction of, you know, things in Nineveh, that it's an archaeological war that certain forces are going in and taking ancient relics or ancient, hist- you know, tablets or things that lend itself to ancient history that might um, change the story on kind of the history of civilization and why we're here and things like that have you is there any conversation over there about things coming up missing so i remember when the iraq war started like the the library of kind of uh, antiquity was just kind of looted and I, i've heard that kind of throughout history of going in and taking out different uh, the, the library of alexandria another example just burning certain records that are illuminating if you will any any conversation about that going on over there um, yeah, I'm sure there is. Uh, again, it's not my specialty, but um, I did meet with the director of antiquities back in um, 20, gosh, I think it was 2014, so a few years now, um, to talk about the theft of the, you know, the relics and the destruction of um, historical sites. Uh, and then there's the guy, um, Khalid al-Assad, I think his name was, the man who basically is responsible for having protected the relics in Tadmor or Palmyra, um, and he uh, he paid it dearly. Terrorists killed him um, when they took over Palmyra. But you take a town like Malula, which is an ancient um, Christian Aramaic-speaking town, and uh, mm. when I first went there, it was 
let's see, it was June 2014, it was two months after Palmyra was liberated by the Syrian army, Hezbollah, and local defenders. And uh, the damage was incredible, it was devastating what they did, these terrorists did to Palmyra, all in the name of liberating Syria and bringing, you know, democracy. They literally, what they couldn't steal, they gouged out, if it was fabric, for example, or they burned or they shot. You know, they, they specifically were destroying um, heritage. They were also looting and looking for gold and valuables, but they definitely um, um, distinctly made it an effort to destroy the heritage there. That's why when I went back to Maalula this year, I'd been back um, once before that, I think it was once, but this year when I went back, it was September and it was um, for the annual festival of the Holy Cross. And so now, uh, you know, I'm not religious myself, but I definitely respect people who are. And it was very moving to be in Ma'lula for this tradition, which is said to be nearly 1,700 years old. Um, it has to do with finding the cross and sending a message to Constantinople. And so they lit crosses on top of mountaintops. And Ma'lula, um, I was told by a resident from Ma'lula, it's the only area that still does this ancient tradition. So this mm. is like incredibly historic and moving. Um, and the only time they didn't um, hold the Festival of the Cross was in September 2013 when Malula was occupied by Al-Qaeda and other terrorists. So that's just one example. And I think it's, it's a very poignant example that once Malula was restored to security and stability, life went on and the ancient traditions carried on. And that can be said throughout Syria. Maybe, maybe not always the ancient traditions, but um, you know, aspects of life return. As soon as Eastern Ghouta is cleared of um, Jaysh al-Islam and Al-Qaeda, as soon as it was cleared um, this past um, April, uh, right away people were working to rehabilitate um, the towns, to bring electricity, to make the schools functional again. Instead of being used as headquarters for the terrorists, the schools could be used as schools again. Right. Now, you know, when we're talking about propaganda and, and child propaganda, I, I think we might have already talked about Bana al-Abid. Um, she's one of the, the, the star um, icons of, you know, child propaganda um, in Syria. The poor child has been exploited by her own family and by vulture media and and the UN itself. But um, one of, Sobana, I think people know the gist of the story. She was said to be in East Aleppo when it was occupied, when it was being under siege by the Syrian military fighting against Al-Qaeda. And Bana was said to be tweeting, um, you know, these these disturbing tweets about how bad life was. And it turned out later that her mom, Fatima, admitted to penning, typing most of these tweets. Um, there's a whole lot of nuances with the Bana story. Um, I saw one interview where, I mean, she clearly had tried, you know, bless her heart, to memorize the script. And the, the interviewer was like, what's your favorite food? And she's yeah. like, free the kids in Syria, please. Like, okay. Yeah, it was save, save the children of Syria is what she said. Yeah, I was just like. It, said, you know, do you like the food in Istanbul? What's your favorite food? And yeah. She said, and then the mom translated what she should say. Right, so exactly. Then he, said, then he asked her a follow-up question, um, like, um, how are you doing now? And she said, fish, or something like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. But anyway, um, so, the, so just in brief, uh, with Bana, um, her own father, uh, by all rights, seems to have been a member of, I forget the name, um, uh I forget the name of this, this one brigade, but it was a terrorist brigade and they worked with ISIS and he was working in a Sharia court in the eye hospital complex that was occupied by terrorists and turned into a headquarters and into underground um, prisons, dungeons. Uh, so the father worked, you know, there and, and he was a terrorist and the whole family where they lived, um, the, their apartment was surrounded by terrorist headquarters. And there's one poignant scene where now I refer to a Syrian journalist, Khalid Iskaif, who found this out. Um, 
there's one scene where Bana, um, looks, looking adorable, talks about how sad she is. And so after Aleppo was liberated, Escape went to this particular area. He's like, all right, this is where she was standing. Now just turn your camera, as, as they did not turn a camera, and there's the main Al-Qaeda headquarters in northern Syria. Now, this raises two important points. Number one, um, she was very close to a very important Al-Qaeda headquarters. But number two, they wouldn't have let her film there had she not been a part of this whole propaganda scheme. Right. Because every Syrian civilian I've met uh, that's come from areas that were occupied, whether it's uh, Aleppo or Madaya or Ghouta, has said, hell no, we didn't go near them. If we did, they would have emptied their guns into us. You know, We were terrified of them. Um, but the other thing is with the Bana story, then she and her family, when Aleppo was liberated, uh, went on to Turkey, got Turkish citizenship, and then she went on, you know, eight or nine years old to write a memoirs. Of course, she didn't write it. And the United Nations lauded her and even retweeted her, her rehearsed speech of her, English is much better by now, um, talking about how she wants Syrian children to go back to school. And the supreme irony is that her own family were the reason one of the reasons that Syrian children weren't going to school because terrorists were occupying schools. Every area, every city, they, they occupy schools. Well, you said, and I've seen, I mean, it seems like Syria is winning. Assad is winning. And like you said, things are sort of getting back to normal. But like I said at the beginning, I don't see, what do you, you know, look through, help me out. Look, look through Eva's crystal ball. I know you're going to be heading back. If you bet, I mean, for boots on the ground, you're, you're very experienced you know, in this area, prognosticate for us, if you will, the next six months to a year, are we going to be seeing more of these false flag chemical attacks? Are they going to, because I'm, I'm seeing, I'm seeing reports and help me if I'm wrong, um, that there are bombings taking place, U.S. bombing certain areas in that area, in, in Syria, in certain areas. What do you, what's happening? What's going to happen? Do you see? Obviously, it's, I don't think it's getting taken off the plate as far as, you know, it's still going to be in the crosshairs, but what do you see going down? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to preface that with a caveat that I cannot predict. But of what course. I can say is that you're right about the fact, I'm just scrolling down because I saved something to mention. You're right about the fact that the, the game, the U.S. game is not up in Syria, even though the Syrian people have made it very clear that they want their president and um, they, they don't want the U.S. presence in Syria. The U.S. presence in Syria is illegal. Syria never invited the U.S.-led coalition to invade and occupy eastern area or any area of Syria, and they continue to occupy. They continue to aid ISIS. And this is the supreme irony. Now, a friend of mine, um, he goes by Walid790721 on Twitter. He, I, I hadn't seen this, and I was, I was uh, um, scrolling through Twitter today. I saw his tweet um, saying, the Trump administration is still adamant on regime change by any means in Syria. Pompeo's special representative for Syria, James Jeffrey, yesterday made that clear. And he linked to a short excerpt of Jeffrey basically talking about how, you know, the West must find a... So a regime that was acceptable to them kind of thing and that the current government had to go. Um, as, and, as if regime change is just a foregone conclusion. You know what I mean? It's like we're not even going to discuss a government with Assad in it. Supremely arrogant. You know, they're still uncovering um, mass graves in Raqqa, which the U.S.-led coalition destroyed. The U.S. is directly responsible for thousands, if not more, um, deaths of Syrian civilians, let alone deaths of Syrian soldiers. Now, there's an incident in, um, I think it was the Tharda mountain, I might be wrong about that name, in Derazor, eastern Syria, in September 2016, when um, the U.S.-led coalition sustained a prolonged attack on a Syrian Arab army position for at least, if not more than one hour, um, killing untold numbers. Now, the number the Syrian um, officials put out is something in the 60s. 
but uh, Tim Anderson went there and did an extensive report on this, and, and the number is much higher than that. I, I believe it was well over 100 Syrian soldiers killed in a sustained attack. It wasn't a one-off, oopsie. It was a sustained attack. The U.S. clearly knew with all their technology very well that they were attacking Syrian army positions, and after their attack finished, then ISIS took over that position. And I'm sure people are aware that Deir Zor was um, besieged by ISIS. And so this was a very important position. It was in the countryside, but still an important position. And it isn't the only time that the U.S., it's certainly not the first, not the last time the U.S. has deliberately sabotaged the Syrian army in order to let ISIS advance. ISIS couldn't have taken over Palmyra had the U.S. not stepped back and let them traverse hundreds of kilometers of open desert. And more recently, the U.S. has, on multiple occasions, according to Syrian media, um, has, has been using um, both white phosphorus and cluster munitions, both of which are prohibited use against Syrian civilians. And they're, they're doing this repeatedly. Meanwhile, in Idlib, um, now I have an article, um, I, I forget the guy's name, but the, my article, my last article for RT was about Idlib and the necessity for Idlib to be liberated of Al-Qaeda because, and I, I cited, I wish I could remember his name offhand, I could dig it up, but um, I cited even a U.S. official himself who acknowledged that Idlib is an Al-Qaeda hotbed, Al-Qaeda safe haven. Um, and yet the way Western media is purport, uh, portraying Idlib, so Idlib is in like um, northern, um, not quite western Syria, but northwest of Aleppo, corporate media is portraying Idlib as just filled with three million civilians. They're being, um, you know, potentially going to be genocide by the Syrian army. But if we look at past examples, Aleppo, Ghouta, Elwar, Homs, the old city of Homs, Dara, in each case, there have been reconciliation deals, there have been humanitarian corridors, there have been negotiations to transfer the terrorist groups out of the area in question, or if they're Syrian and not foreign, they can take reconciliation and lay down their weapons and go back to their normal lives. And I interviewed the Minister of Reconciliation back in June 2014, and at that time, it was already over, I believe the number was 85,000 Syrians who had taken reconciliation. So this is, this is a hugely humane and um, effective way to bring peace and stability to areas. Um, and so with regard to Idlib, the same offers have been made, but the terrorists inside refuse reconciliation, and they've, they've come right out and threatened other terrorists, other so-called rebels, if you take reconciliation, we're going to slaughter you. So they're holding the civilian population um, hostage, and at the same time, they're firing on areas outside of their areas of control. So, so they're not it, going anywhere anytime soon. You know, I can't predict how that's going to play out. Um, the Syrian does this does this narrative of I'm sorry to interrupt, but does this narrative of of Trump? You know, he in, when he was campaigning, he was like, you know, Hillary and Obama they make the terrorists because he was kind of basically alluding to the West funding the terrorists, and so now this supposed defunding, which I don't think has happened, is this narrative supposedly Trump fighting the deep state, et cetera, et cetera, or is he just going about things in a different manner since the cat's kind of out of the bag about the West and you know NATO funneling weapons i i really can't speculate onto that i know some people would say yes he's fighting the deep state and they would say for example in april of this year when france uk and the u.s uh, attacked syria on the premise of attacking chemical weapons sites um you know people that say trump is fighting the deep state would say well they they chose sites that were effectively useless or right. know, didn't matter if they attacked. I do, I disagree with that actually because one of the sites they attacked, like they fired over, I think it was 103 missiles, and one of the sites they attacked was inside of Damascus itself. So Damascus has millions of citizens, and the area they attacked was Berze, 
uh, and it happened to be um, a, fa a facility that was uh, one of the things they were producing was cancer treatment drugs, and they were, they were producing other sorts of um, things to be used in medicines. And this is this facility was completely destroyed. So I don't necessarily agree with this notion, but I'm not a I'm not an analyst that I sure. like to speculate about that. In, in Russia, I, what's you know Russia's uh, role? Obviously, they're... back to your question, what I will say is that there are going by all rights, there's going to be another staged chemical attack. The Syrian and Russian, um, not just media, their intelligence have reported time and again seeing terrorists and the white helmets moving canisters or um, containers of chlorine, um, you know, to from one area to another area of Idlib. And uh, Vanessa Bailey um, in September, I believe it was, was in um, an area of eastern Idlib, I think it was, that was um, where she was able to meet with civilians whose children and loved ones were kidnapped. And um, there's so many people that have been kidnapped um, and they're most likely going to show up in one of these staged videos. Um, so, I, I, and this is what this, the Russian uh, Ministry of, I think, Defense has been warning about again and again. Yeah. There's going to be a chemical provocation and they're going to blame it on the Syrian army or on the Russians. Um, so I think that's something definitely to be wary of. I think a lot of us expected it would have happened by now. I thought it would have happened in September or October. Um, the most humane thing to do, if the West actually cared about human rights and stability, the most humane thing to do would be to allow a, a peaceful political resolution to Idlib and you know, take these terrorists, especially the foreigners, out of Syria and the ones that want to reconcile can, but to allow the people of Idlib to return to stability. Because in every case where it's happened elsewhere, people go back to their normal lives. And this is something the media, when, whenever they're crying about save Aleppo, save Ghouta, save Idlib, the follow-up, oh, you know, it wasn't that Aleppo fell. Actually, Aleppo is now functioning and rebuilding and people are at peace. They never follow up with that, but that's always been the case. And I've been, as I wrote in this article I referred to, I've been to every major place, um, Aleppo, Ghouta, um, Dara, uh, Madaya, Alwar, Homs Old City, all these places that were once occupied and that at one point or another, the media was raising um, cries of alarm over the, you know, the genocide or the horrors that were going to happen um, due to the Syrian army siege or the military operations. And each time, yes, of course, civilian lives will be lost because it is a war and they are fighting terrorism. Nobody could say civilians aren't being killed, but it is not a systematic and deliberate um, um, act of killing as the media right. And to the contrary, if they, these, these same um, crocodile-tearing um, journalists would deign to go to these areas now and talk to people, they would find out people are saying, thank God we can afford to buy food now. We're not being held hostage. There are not public executions in our main square. Our neighbors are not being beheaded or point-blank assassinated now. I mean, seriously. That occupation, that's a I mean, gentle euphemism. It had to have been such a freaking nightmare. I mean, yes. just I, it's just it's like out of a horror movie. It truly is. And that's why, to be honest, I get pissed off when people here comfortably in the West harp on about, you know, having read some report by Human Rights Watch, whose director is the dictator of Human Rights Watch for two decades. And he, Ken Roth, he's tweeted um, photos and footage of areas that are not even in Syria and alleged it's, you know, damage done by Assad and his personal army. It's the Syrian Arab army. It's comprised of Syrians of all faiths from all around. It's a conscripted army. It's not an Alawi army. It includes a significant number of Sunnis. And these people are fighting for Syria. 
I mean, like all these people that believe this rhetoric, just ask yourself, if the situation was reversed and the town or city you lived in was suddenly infested by Al-Qaeda terrorists that want to impose Sharia law on you and that are going to execute you for any frivolous reason, would you not fight back? You damn well would fight back. You'd have to be brainless if you did not fight back. Right. And you'd support your army and you'd support your political leadership in bringing peace. After that, it's up to Syrians to decide their future, to resolve their political issues. It's not up to some, you know, hairy Wahhabis stuffed in a suit to so-called represent Syria and impose a, a type of rule on, on secular Syrians that no secular Syrians want, whether they're Sunnis or Christians or whatever their faith. They don't want any, they don't want people dictating to them how they practice their faith. You know, I lived in Gaza and I love Gaza. It is a more um, uh, conservative society and Hamas is in charge. Okay, look, I initially supported Palestinians' um, election of Hamas because I thought it was their right to choose. I don't support Hamas. I do support resistance. I'll be clear about that. I think Palestinians, I know Palestinians have the right to resist the Israeli occupation of their land, all their land, by any means possible. That's international law. But I don't support Hamas as a movement. They are Muslim Brotherhood. Um, but in the end, it's not for me to decide. It's for Palestinians. Sure, yeah, of course. Um, but uh, in Syria, I've never seen what a secular society comprising all these faiths look like. And I've told this story a million times, but I was invited to this wild Easter party where people were drinking and dancing. And the people that invited me were two Sunni Muslims, you know, and they're not an anomaly. This is Syria. It's up to them to practice their faith as they see fit or not have faith. I've met so many um, agnostics or atheists in Syria, but the bottom line is it's up to them. And nobody wants this Wahhabi, um, crazy extremist ideology imposed on them. And that's what Canada, America, Britain, France, Germany are advocating. Wow. I, this is, that's why I feel your work is so invaluable because you know this kind of information, if you're listening, ladies and gentlemen, and thinking, wow, this is the complete antithesis of what I thought was going on or what I've ever heard, that's because it is. <laughs> you know, this is the absolute truth. And man, I can't thank you. I mean, I tell you all the time, not all the time online, but you're so, so brave. They're, like you said, we're so comfortable over here. People people don't put their skin in the game like you have. And I can't thank you enough for it. You, Vanessa, all the whole crew that really puts the boots on the ground, hangs with the people. I didn't know you were so fluent in Arabic listening to you talk with the cab drivers. Like, and you were black belt in Taekwondo. Am I wrong at that? Did I see that online? Yeah, I've lost all this. I saw this. I saw this. I'm not sure what kind of kick. I was like, check her out. I need to hear something about that. That's cool. That's well. So you can obviously take care of yourself while you're over there. But any any plans to uh, head back? You know, any time coming up? Yep. Um, I'm not going to say the exact date, but definitely smart. Smart. Yep. And uh, I do have some more interviews coming out. And I'll just say, like on my YouTube, uh, I've I made playlists, and one of them is Syria. And um, I would encourage people to scroll down back to 2014, because uh, what I really try to do is like I, I try not to. I know I am, in a sense, speaking for Syrians, and I'm relating what Syrians have told me, but I really try to record their voices and let you hear them, and you decide, you know, because I really think it's important to, to hear a spectrum of Syrian voices. Um, so you know, I'm still working on subtitling. I have um, interviews uh, from Dara, people I met in Dara, um, 
that I, both in May and September, it takes ages to subtitle. I have another interesting mm. interview with Mufti Hassoun. Now, I'll just say he's one of the most amazing people I've ever met. He's Syria's Grand Mufti. Um, now, if you compare, and there is no comparison, the Saudi Mufti to Mufti Hassoun, it's night and day. The Saudi Mufti wants to eradicate and, and destroy all churches, and the Syrian Mufti uh, is beloved by Christians, and he, he loves you know, he loves all faiths and he calls himself the Mufti of all Syrians. And he's an extremely open-minded uh, person, very filled with love. And unfortunately, um, he has also been vilified in Western media. His son, Sadia, was executed um, October 2nd, uh, I believe it was 2013, because when I met with him this time, it happened to be the anniversary. And he said, five years ago, my son, Saria, was executed. Wow. And, uh, but this is the extent of his just amazing compassion. He publicly forgave the assassins. He understood they were doing a job and he, he implored them wow. to come back to Syria. And um, now I, I wrote about this uh, some years ago, but the, the day that he did that or the next day he received a text message saying, we don't accept your apology and we're coming for you next kind of thing. Uh, so really a horrific story on top of that, Western media misconstrued his words. And, I imagine um, that. In, in the interview I did with him recently, which I'm also, I've subtitled, but I'm having two different sets of uh, people review my subtitling because I want to be as accurate as possible. This is why it takes me forever because <laughs> I'm doing this on my own. Uh, but in that interview, I asked him to address that. And he said what he said and what was deliberately mistranslated, he said, essentially, we are fighting terrorism and this terrorism has to be stopped or it's going to come to you. And the media misconstrued his words to say Mufti Hassoun pledges to send suicide bombers to Europe or something like that. Wow. Like, complete wow. crap. Anybody who's met this man will be totally awed by his um, his compassion and his humility. So that I'm going to get that out soon too. And then I mentioned the two audio interviews I've done recently with Syrian doctors, which are just fascinating because, you know, at the beginning, I think you, did you mention Sam's or am I making that up? Who's that? Okay, there's an association called the Syrian um, American Medical Society, SAMS, and they have, oh, you know what, you mentioned U.S. Um, aid. U.S. yeah. I was thinking U.S. State Department, then I, I leapt to thinking about SAMS. Anyway, SAMS is very entrenched with the U.S. government and has received millions of dollars from them, and predictably they tow um, the Western propaganda on Syria. These two doctors I've interviewed, and I will be interviewing one more, um, were at some point involved in SAMS. And they basically talked about how SAMS uh, went from being an actual professional ethical medical association to being radicalized in pre any, uh, pretty much a Muslim Brotherhood front group. Um, so it's, it's very interesting. I'll, I'll try to get these interviews out soon. Well, where can, shout out, where can we, do you have a one-stop shop or do you have like a little bit, I know you're on Twitter or Facebook, where would you like to point people to to get a hold of you? Or not get a hold of you, but you know, see what you're up to. And get All right. Can you give a shout out to my Patreon? Because um, Absolutely. I this is what helps me exist in my very humble apartment. You can see my background here. Uh, so yeah, my Patreon, um, I, yeah, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, I'm getting a right. censorship. But anyway, I continue to post there. And my YouTube. Okay. Um, I have a SoundCloud, but I try to put everything, for example, if it's just MP3, I put it on SoundCloud. But I also try to put it in video format on YouTube. So okay, YouTube, I'll, I'll post your Patreon link and your YouTube page so people can check your videos and stuff. Awesome. Everything on my Patreon, by the way, is open content. I don't put anything behind a firewall. Just, you know, I've, I've, I think I've put one or two thank you messages for patrons only, but I don't believe in hiding content. Gotcha. Gotcha. Man, I can't thank you enough. Again, you're, you're bold, brave, beautiful. And just let me tell you what, 
be please be safe on your next trip take care of yourself and just keep doing the work you're doing it's so again most people who don't know they're being played don't exactly understand how invaluable this this information is you have but i'm telling you i i can't thank you enough and, and keep doing it keep doing it and again stay safe <laughs> i don't mean to jinx you i just you know it's a like i said we there's I can't, I'm not going to massacre the names, but you know them, you've heard them, the, the journalists who have disappeared, who've been killed. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a very dangerous game that you were in. And um, yeah, wish I, mean, you the best. I, I think uh, all of us who go to Syria, I mean, first and foremost, of course, it's Syrians who are the most exposed to danger. But like in going to Aleppo before it was liberated, you had to go down a road that was prone to being sniped or shelled. Same with going to the state hospital in Dara, where uh, I was told snipers were just 100 meters away. So I'd say that the most dangerous parts are probably in my past. So don't worry too much about my safety. <laughs> good, good. That, that gives me a little bit of comfort. Eva, thank you again so much. You're very generous with your time. Peace thank and you. so much love. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. There will always be more.